It's Wednesday, October 24th, 2018. I'm Herbie Newell, and this is the Defender Podcast, a daily encouragement to mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This daily podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. We'll have the opportunity to speak and participate in a panel at the ERLC, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, their national conference, which was held in Dallas, Texas on October 11th and 13th. And while at the conference, I was able to sit down with Lauren Green McAfee uh, of Hobby Lobby and Michael McAfee of the Museum of the Bible. And the McAfees are in the adoption process and have the opportunity to speak worldwide with their positions at Hobby Lobby and the Museum of the Bible. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lauren Green McAfee and Michael McAfee. Well, I'm honored to have Michael and Lauren McAfee here and just to talk a little bit about adoption and to talk a little bit about their roles with what they do. Uh, we are privileged to be able to work with this sweet family. And Lauren is the corporate ambassador for Hobby Lobby. And so she has been interviewed on many major media for both her book as well as for her uh, lobby for her family company and to defend the company from cultural attacks. Uh, through legis- different types of legislation. And then Michael is Director of Outreach and Engagement for the Museum of the Bible. And so the Museum of the Bible is almost one year old, and Michael has had a pivotal role in helping see that get started. And uh, he is also a PhD student. Uh, or, or Lauren is also a PD- PhD student. They're both studying at Southern Seminary. Michael is also uh, a teaching pastor in Oklahoma City, and they live in Oklahoma City. And we're just grateful to have you guys on. And I know about a month ago, you were logged in for your adoption for China. That's right. Yes. And we were even talking about that you have an award that no family wants. <laughs> yes. The longest waiting international couple. <laughs> we have. six years. We um, made it. <laughs> that's one of those awards you get and no one ever wants to take yeah, it away yeah, from you. Yeah, no one wants that. <laughs> <clears throat> but I just, uh, Lauren, just to start, you know, you've written a book with your mom, Only One Life. And one of the things you talk about is you encourage women to be the way God created them to be um, and to leave an indelible print for future generations. And so I feel like you and your family have really lived out that book. So just talk about the inspiration of you and your mom writing this book. Yeah, it was. So my mom and I wrote it together. We co-authored this book. And in the book, we have 12 chapters and each chapter has many biographies of women that have kind of led and been examples in different character traits of shaping legacy. And our encouragement in the book is just for women to see their um, opportunity to mm-hmm. shape legacy and legacy meaning kind of what is it that will outlive our lives kind of mm-hmm. what is it that will live on beyond us once we're gone and that can look a lot of different ways and I think that as a woman sometimes I felt frustrated that I felt like you had to be one particular mold of what it looks like to be um, a godly woman and in this in, in highlighting 36 different mini biographies of these women, Um, we just got to say, look, all of these women had very different stories, Mm. Um, both women from the Bible, women throughout history, Mm. and then women today that have been in different contexts, different race background, different socioeconomic status, and some married, single, never had kids, had a lot of kids. And each of them just lived with this intentionality Mm. of um, wanting to be obedient to the Lord with exactly where they were in Mm. their context. And 
my mom and I have gotten to, we traveled around a bit raising awareness about Museum of the Bible. And in doing that, we were holding these women events, kind of encouraging women and their legacy and inviting them to be a part of Museum of the Bible. And we just met so many women that were inspiring to us in the very unique ways they were using their gifts, their talent, their treasure to, to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Um, and so that was kind of what first gave us the inspiration for this book was seeing other women and seeing that their stories inspired us. And so we're like, hey, let's just write a book that's about other women's stories. Um, and, and in that, we, we get to share the story of the legacy heritage that we've come from personally. So, I mean, my mom is an amazing woman of God, um, but my, both my grandparents um, and my great-grandmothers were just incredible women who really lived their lives to um, obey the Lord the best that they could and shape a legacy that would outlive them. And now, generations down the line, there are believers serving the Lord in many different contexts, whether it's in business or full-time ministry or whatever it is, um, that are just wanting to be obedient. So um, I'm very grateful for the legacy that I've had invested in me. um, but one of the, the neat things about the book is that we've seen that there are women that didn't have that, but were the first ones to start that for their own family. Um, so while I'm grateful for that, um, that's not a requirement for anyone to be able to shape a legacy that is centered on Christ and the gospel and impacting his kingdom, not only during our lives, but even once we're gone from this earth. So that was, yeah, that was kind of the inspiration for the book. Well, I know... Our, our, our country and believers owe so much to the legacy that your family has laid down. And, you know, from a simple craft store that really has become an icon, along with Chick-fil-A, of two businesses that say, we can, we can do well in business and still exalt the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I love the way as well that y'all have used that now to give us a gift to the Museum of the Bible. And Michael, I know you were a big part traveling uh, what, for 46 weeks yeah. one year, <laughs> you know, just to go around to try to put things together for you Museum of the Bible. So talk about first, what just the labor of love that went into everything before the museum could even be opened. Yeah, absolutely. So in uh, 2009, the year we got married, uh, that was when uh, the family first was presented sort of with an opportunity to purchase an artifact. And So it kind of began with this dream of, wouldn't it be great if we could acquire a few things to donate to a museum, you know, and to see someone, someone should really make a museum dedicated to the Bible. That'd be great. And then eventually uh, the family felt like, hey, this may be something that God's calling Mm -hmm. us to. And so, uh, so yeah, it it was a labor of love. We had a major economic impact study done researching what would be, uh, first off, would there be any interest in a museum dedicated to the Bible? And then second, where would it be best attended? Mm -hmm. And they were encouraged, surprised to find that uh, over 80% of Americans um, had a strong interest in attending uh, or going to a museum dedicated to the Bible. And so, and that made some sense. I mean, we, there's still a strong love for the Bible. 86% of Americans, when asked to name a book they consider sacred or holy, named the Bible. The next closest book was the Quran at 10%. So you're talking about just overwhelming, regardless of your religious belief, there is a reverence and an awe to the Bible, uh, but yet we are the most biblically illiterate generation of Americans in the history of our nation, uh, despite the fact that we have instant access to 
mm-hmm. anything that we want on our phones through Google. And so, um, so there was a strong interest and that it was going to be best attended in DC. So began praying and seeking the Lord and just asking that he might open up an opportunity. And so um, a property became open right there a couple blocks off the mall and uh, purchased that property. And they said it'll take about 10 to 15 years on average to see you know tenants moved out and renovations get approved and then happen and the museum open. And uh, by God's grace, in five years, we saw it open. And so last November, now um, there's a museum privately uh, funded, no government money, completely privately funded by just, you know, everything from, you know, million dollar gifts to just uh, college students and single moms that are just sacrificing cups of coffee. Uh, That's actually one of the things I love at the museum is we have this project we called One Million Names where we want to, um, anyone who gives any amount, we want to put their name on the wall at the museum. And so um, it's so cool because it's not just about, I mean, obviously like the donations are wonderful. That helps ministries run. Donations to Lifeline are mm-hmm. wonderful. They help the ministry run. But it's the fact that, you know, we've had uh, the vice president has come a couple of times. We have senators and, and congressmen from both sides of the aisle. Um, I mean, we've like people of power are there mm-hmm. in D.C. And when they come, we get to show them this wall and say, do you realize there's, you know, at this point we have, I think it's 150,000 names. So we're hoping that gets to a wow. million. But do you realize there's tens of thousands, literally over 100,000 people today that care about this book so much that they wanted to see this museum be in existence. And so um, it's really great. The mission is to invite all people to engage with the Bible, that regardless of your background, this book has changed our world and we should uh, engage with it. You should know the story, agree with it, disagree with it, find hope and life and eternity within its pages or not. We want everyone to know the Bible story and that's why we exist, to share it. Well, I know one of the things we were talking about is it obviously you expect to have a huge market from believers, yep. but how in the first several months, how y'all have just been blown away by how many people from around the world have come, but also how many people that weren't Christ followers who've come to the museum. Yeah. And obviously it's so significant being in DC. How do you think that has really been, why do you think it's been so significant that it, it has been in Washington, DC? Yeah, I think DC was was important because number one, if you're going to go to a museum, it's going to be in, in Washington, right? And so the other, some of the other places were like New York and Dallas and other places, but DC is the museum capital mm-hmm. of our country. There's 87 museums in Washington, and uh, Museum of the Bible is the third largest. Wow! And so even just in terms of scale, it's a uh, it's it's massive and it's a premier museum. And so um, I think that that's important, and I think it being um, we have a standard of excellence. I mean, the museum itself is top quality. And one of the reasons why that was so important is because we know we're competing with, mm-hmm. um, all these other great museums. But to your point, like international travelers, when they come to America, one of the places that they got to go is Washington DC. Right. That, yeah. If you make it to Broadway and you know, they're in New York and see a show, or if you go to the West coast, go to LA or whatever, but, but this is the capital of our mm-hmm. country. And so there's so much history. I mean, you have our, are uh, uh, obviously all the national monuments and things um, that are there as well as um, the different Congress and the White House Supreme Court. And so we have this ability to um, share the Bible with the whole world Mm. because the whole world comes to Washington. And I know Washington is big for you too, Lauren, because you get to speak out on behalf of your company and your family business for religious liberty, which takes you to D.C. a lot. And just grateful for even the voice of clarity. You have been in a lot of these religious liberty. Why, why do you think it's so important 
that the public sector get engaged with religious liberty? Yeah, whenever our family was kind of faced with this issue that led us to the Supreme Court mm-hmm. back in kind of from 2012 to 2014, uh, it was it was not something we ever expected. I mean, you know, you don't think like, oh yeah, we'll probably <laughs> end up at the Supreme Court someday. That was just not on our radar. Um, and so, kind of as we as we just journeyed through that, we just felt. I mean, for, for our family, it was, we knew what was right and what our faith called for. And that was to not pay for, for drugs and devices that were considered abortifacients because right. that went against our deeply held religious convictions. And so, you know, for us, it was just about doing what was right and sticking with what we knew our convictions mm-hmm. and our faith was. And, and that was a really, it, it was a difficult journey in many ways because we just, we didn't know the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a family, we had all kind of come together one night and just talked about what, what are we going to do? And, you know, what does that play that out? Like if we, if we do pursue this um, and we don't follow kind of the government's mandate on us, then what does that look like? If we do go through the court systems and lose um, and kind of all, all had to realize that that, could mean a reality where we end up losing the company and closing its doors. Because if we did not comply with the government's mandate to pay for those four drugs and devices, we would be fined $1.2 million a day, a day. So not sustainable in in the long-term scheme right. of business. Um, but that was something that, you know, we just, we trusted in the Lord and, and knew that doing following his word and, and our faith was what was right. So, um, it, it was very encouraging to throughout that journey. And even today see people that said they were praying for us and praying alongside us in that. And, um, and just knowing that, you know, we were maybe the ones that were at the front of that, but we weren't in it alone. I right. mean, this was, this was many people that were all kind of standing in prayer and, 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 um, journeying alongside with us. Right. And and that was really encouraging and is still one of the things that today is always just really sweet to hear. Pe- whenever I meet people, they'll say like, oh, you know, we were praying with you in that journey. And um, that's what's so encouraging is just seeing so many people that have also, you know, wanted to stick with their faith and put their faith first in every area of life. And so for us and our family, we do have a faith that is based off of scripture and, you know, obviously the Bible is very important to us, gotten involved with the museum Bible. Um, but that's something that permeates into every area of our life. Mm-hmm. So our family life, it's not just something on Sundays. That means our work and how we live out our company and, and the values that we have. And so um, it's, it's really neat to see that there are many other believers out there doing the same thing. And we may get recognized for it, but, um, you know, the, the people that were right there along with us in the journey praying for us are just as much the oh, yeah. to be, you know, recognized and we're thankful for that. Yeah. But I know we all are also thankful for y'all having the courage to say, we'll be the one that steps out. Uh, and I know that everybody plays that part, but certainly the part that is invaluable is y'all having the courage and the conviction to step out. Uh, and and just not even about the case or religious liberty, but showing the gospel of Christ. And so I know that both of you have had to travel a lot and your jobs uh, mean that you travel a lot. And uh, you all got to go on many trips, even preparing for Museum of the Bible. But what led you to say, okay, it's time to start a family and we're going to do that through adoption? 
Yeah. Did you? Okay. No, go for it. So adoption has been something that has been in my family for generations. So my grandparents adopted my aunt, my parents adopted my sister, my brother and sister-in-law are foster parents. My other sister is, um, has a background in uh, social work Mm. and she is a therapist. So I think that I kind of just have always, always, um, pictured myself adopting someday. And and so whenever Michael and I were dating, that was something that we kind of talked about and he was totally on board with a kind of adoption as well. And so whenever, whenever we were, <laughs> so we'd been married for um, a few years when Michael was turning 25 and I took him out to a birthday dinner and international adoption is something that my family had done in the past. So whenever I took Michael out for his 25th birthday, uh, you know, we're eating like a fancy dinner that was, you know, nice, more than what we would normally afford on a regular night. And I, you know, halfway through the night mentioned like, hey, so I don't know, you know, if you knew, but 25 is kind of the age that you have to be to start the adoption process. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the day he turned 25. So in some of the countries we were looking at, it was, um, unbeknownst to him, I don't know if he knew I was looking at that, but the kind of youngest um, age you could be was if at least one of the spouse um, was 25. So um, that kind of was the first conversation about it. Yeah, and like eating this like super <laughs> nice steak and my wife starts tearing up talking about like adopting and, yeah. you know, how do you say Perfect. no to that? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. God's been speaking to me too. Let's do it. <laughs> no, so, but Michael was like, yeah, yeah, let's let's pray about that for the next, you know, month or 40 days and, and then kind of talk about days. that. 40 days. Sounded spiritual. 40 Jesus did that. And then it was like the next day he had printed off the adoption application and was like, Hey, here's the papers. Like, let's, (laughs) let's go for this. So, um, yeah, that was almost six years ago now that we started the adoption process. So our journey has been very long and, um, you know, we, we just, we're so excited for the day that we do get to have Mm -hmm. a complete adoption, but we've also learned so much in the journey of waiting on the Lord and trusting in him and, and having to learn patience when we didn't really want to. Mm -hmm. Um, but adoption is just a beautiful Mm -hmm. picture of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I remember my church once, well, I was in a class on a Sunday morning from what my church was doing and they just talked about all the ways Mm -hmm. that adoption shows kind of, the picture of the gospel and how we were adopted into God's family mm-hmm. when we come to know him through um, Christ's death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins mm-hmm. that we have um, and being completely adopted mm-hmm. as sons and daughters. And so, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I've always, I think I'd always pictured adoption, but never really considered the depth mm-hmm. of the beauty of it in that way until kind of it was in that season, right? When we started processing, kind of jumping into adoption ourselves that I would just realized how, um, yeah, how beautiful it is. And, mm-hmm. and so we're really excited to be on that journey. Yeah. And that was, I mean, so two things to just kind of highlight. One was the, the reason that my heart was primed. Adoption has not been a part of my family story. 
but it was our church that has a robust adoption and orphan care ministry that goes beyond just, I mean, we have support groups for adoptive and foster care families, but even having, you know, Orphan Sunday each November and having some of the things that are just like in the regular rhythms of our church made it where I recognized God's heart for adoption and the possibility that sort of in the same way that our church is also very focused on missions and it's not everyone is called to be a missionary, but everyone's called to be part of missions and the same being true for adoption and orphan care that not everyone is called to adopt, but everyone is called to play some role in caring for orphans. And so, um, so that was really big for me. So then when she did take me out for my 25th birthday, it made it easy. Um, I had been already praying for uh, an orphanage that we had a partnership with. And so my heart was primed for it. And then the second thing was that um, while it has been a longer season than we thought without, that we have seen God's hand of faithfulness. I mean, in such, such incredible ways that even like in his timing that it's easy now to look back in mm-hmm. hindsight and realize, man, we were able to, you know, that God in his delay uh, was seeking to use us in these roles that he has us in now that we wouldn't be able to mm-hmm. have served in this way if we um, had adopted on our timeline. And sure. so... We are really excited to be um, on the journey and, and getting close to the end, but um, but look back and just uh, are so grateful, not only for um, coming through the process now and getting close to actually getting to travel, but we're also thankful for the delays in the process yeah. because it was part of his plan. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to see God's sovereignty in the moment, mm-hmm. but it's always so yeah. much easier to look back in hindsight and say, yeah. wow. You know, when we thought, what in the world are you doing? We see the grand picture that you're weaving together. And then even, I even think about that we ended up in D.C., the Evangelicals for Life, at the <laughs> yeah. same table. Yes, which, cool. <laughs> you know, shortly after that, you switched over to China, yes. which is where you are now and yep. yes, logged in forward, and yes. moving forward. So the, Bi- the Museum of the Bible's open, yeah. the Supreme Court's over, and here we go on to <laughs> what the Lord good. is called. That's right. <laughs> So Lauren, you just as we close out, I know you talked about women being significant in this book and the significance, and I, just it's so important to encourage these ladies. But what encouragement would you give to moms who might be feeling insignificant, who mm-hmm. are going through the mundane of life and are having a hard time seeing well, what's what's my significance? What difference am I making? And so, what what advice would you give for those that are seeking sanity? among the complex day in and day out of life? Yes, I love that question. And I'll I'll tell the story of one of the women we highlighted in the book. Um, So one of my favorites in Only One Life is uh, Elizabeth Ann Everest's story. And throughout the book, we have a lot of recognizable figures um, like Kay Arthur, uh, Christine Kane, and then women in the Bible like Mary, the mother of Jesus. People will often recognize some of those names, but one of my favorites is Elizabeth Ann Everest, and she's probably one that is least recognized. Um, but I'm so grateful for her legacy because it's changed the world that we live in today, and most people would never realize that. So Elizabeth Ann Everest was um, never married. She lived in England, never married, uh, never had kids of her own. She was just a nanny and worked for a couple of different families. And, and, and at one point, she worked for a family for a while and ended up raising... Um, this boy who was very rambunctious, very much a troublemaker. Um, this boy's parents 
were really not involved in his life. Um, the dad would tell his son, you know, you're not going to amount to anything, mm. basically. And this boy was sent to boarding school and asked for his parents to come visit him. They never would. But Elizabeth Ann Everest, his nanny, would. She invested in him. She shared her faith with him and instilled kind of his convictions, his faith mm-hmm. convictions in him. And um, and th- that boy was Winston Churchill, <laughs> who has had a significant mm-hmm. pa- impact on our world. And he attributed a lot of his conviction and faith to Elizabeth, who mm-hmm. instilled in him a faith um, and just that strength that he had. And whenever he was, Winston was later in his life, he had two things on his nightstand. It was his Bible and a picture of Elizabeth Ann Everest, the woman that basically wow. raised him. And whenever Elizabeth was near at the end of her life, when, and Winston found out that she was sick, he dropped what he was doing and flew and traveled to be with her before she passed away. So that was how important she was. Wow. Now, whenever I put myself in the shoes of Elizabeth, this is a woman who had to be thinking many days, like, what is the point right. <laughs> of investing? I'm, you know, just trying to keep this child out of trouble. You know, she... Uh, I'm sure there were really tough days when she felt like it didn't matter, but it was her faithfulness in the everyday mundaneness Mm. of raising Winston, investing um, a faith legacy in him that ended up changing the world. Now, we don't know. I mean, we don't know. Not everyone that we invest in is going to end up being Winston Churchill, but every life is as significant Mm. and matters and has a place in impacting other lives around them. So as we go through our lives and, and the mundaneness for moms with, you know, just trying to keep your kids alive Mm. (laughs) for those that are single or don't Mm. have children, still investing in the relationships that we have, the Mm. family that we come in contact with, the people in our communities Mm. and, and focusing on the two things that are eternal, which we know is God's word Mm. and human souls Mm. and investing in those things, um, being obedient in the mundane kind of the moment by moment is what in the grand scheme of things will make the difference for the kingdom impact and in eternity. So, um, so hopefully that can be an encouragement to, to not just women, but anyone that is, frustrated with mm. not seeing the purpose in what they're doing, just be faithful. Mm-hmm. Um, God has placed each of us in our own context, and it may not be that we're ever going to be the ones with the platforms or the book mm-hmm. deals or the you know worldly recognition, but that is not what matters in God's That's kingdom. Right. In God's kingdom, it's faithfulness and obedience to Him, mm-hmm. not getting kind of these worldly things. So um, that's what... I constantly have to remind myself is to keep that in mind and keep it that eternal perspective in my mind and not get caught up in kind of the world's picture of what's important. Right. And we're, we're all the body of Christ working mm. together. And I think it even goes back to your example of, of all the people that came up and said, Hey, we're praying for you mm-hmm. while Hobby Lobby is up against the Supreme court. You wouldn't have had the strength without the power of the Holy Spirit and God's people behind you praying. Yeah, they're all part of it. That's right. And so the body of Christ is working together. And just love the stories of how many kids have come home through adoption to Christian families. And kids who have never had the opportunity to hear the gospel are walking in the gospel. And I believe and know that some of these will go back one day to the countries Mm -hmm. that they were born in to make disciples. Mm -hmm. And so excited to see y'all's journey and how that turns out (laughs) and excited. And thank you for joining us and being here. Yeah. Thanks for having us. 
Well, thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. For more information or to connect with me, please visit HerbieNewell.com. To partner with Lifeline, visit LifelineChild.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at LifelineChild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel to you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.